Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. So, um, good evening and uh, welcome everyone. I think we're going to get started because we only have one hour and we want to make uh, maximum use of it. Um, welcome to the LSE for this uh, very special event. My name is Eric Neumeyer. I'm one of the co-directors uh, of the school. As you know, um, this is uh, an event, my note said, the flagship event, no pressure, <laughs> Olivia, flagship event of our uh, Black History um, Month series of uh, public uh, events. Um, uh, and the purpose uh, is celebrating the black figures in history that helped to shape not only the black community, but the entire world. Our theme for this year, I believe, is time for change, action, not words. And recognize that while we can learn from history to make tangible change, we must work together to achieve shared goals of equality and equity. So on that note, delighted to welcome uh, Dr. Olivia Ruta-Sidua to LSE today. Uh, she is an assistant prof in the sociology uh, department. Um, and we also have with us uh, a little bit uh, later, I'll, I'll introduce Maria as well, our LSE student union education uh, officer, and I'm going to introduce the two of them. I'm going to start off asking one or two questions to Olivia, then I'm going to hand over to Maria, and then we want to leave maximum time for uh, you to ask uh, questions. So just very briefly uh, on uh, Olivia's, oh, I said already she's an assistant prof here with us. She was previously um, senior lecturer at the University of Portsmouth. Uh, I'm not going to say what her research on that because that's going to be one of my questions. Uh, she's also the co-editor of the Routledge Handbook of Postcolonial Politics and Decolonization and Feminism in Global Teaching and Learning. That's quite a long... No, it's two books. It's two books. Ah, <laughs> there you go. Makes sense. Uh, Maria, meanwhile, is a British Afghan scholar and holds two MSc degrees, one in education and comparative politics, no, one in education and I think the other one in comparative politics from the University of Oxford and LSE respectively. It's quite something, two MSc degrees. Um, her research focuses on critical pedagogy, civic engagement and active citizenship. Um, she underscores topics of intersectionality, epistemic and testimonial injustice in her work and has recently presented her paper Transnational Solidarity on Palestinian Self-Determination and Black Liberation at the Queen's University in Canada. Um, for those Twitter users uh, in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Black History Month, uh, if you want to use that. Um, and we will make every effort that the uh, event will be um, recorded and made publicly uh, available. So, warm welcome both Olivia and Maria. So Olivia, um, you are a second generation runner, born in Belgium, yeah. lived in Italy, now lives here. Yeah. How has this shaped your career and your research and all of your interests? Yeah, um, so first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm very happy to be here because um, it's not every month of the year that <laughs> we get to say what we want to say, so that's what we're trying to do <laughs> tonight. I think uh, my background, uh, to connect it to maybe also the spirit of, of Black History Month, is um, it took me a while, I'm 43 now, but to understand, I guess, how deeply white and racist Europe is, it's, some, it's, a, it's a detailed understanding I, I, I got from moving around. Because mm. I grew up in Belgium, um, and when you stay in your own country, especially also I grew up in, in, in a white Flemish family, right? Like you're taught how to be on, on the program, with the program of racism not existing or it's humiliating when you bring it up or some, uh, stuff like that. So when I moved to, the, to Italy to study, but then also I lived a little while in France and then coming here, then you just get to see that it's the same disease everywhere, but it manifests itself differently. It attaches itself to to capitalism in very different ways. That's something that I've learned in the UK, where 
the racism and the whiteness is much more polite than the one in, in, in Flanders, let's say, or the ones in France. Like, you have different conversations, but it also made me really th uh, understand that they are not conversations just about being nice to each other or individual intentions, but it's very deeply tied to who gets to survive this global order or not. And I think moving around in Europe, um, uh, and I'll get a chance probably to give more examples later, but that, that's really helped me, I think. On a more positive note, moving around, I've also, I think, seen how in all these places, it's also being resisted, right? So it's not just a doom and gloom story of you know, black people being subjected to whatever. So I've learned a lot about different forms of resistance that again, um, are very different in, in, in many um, of the places. And then I guess being specifically of Rwandan heritage, what I have been, the reason why I have been drawn to international studies or study the international, whether it's in sociology or in development studies or uh, in IR, is very much this experience of 94 where you have the international community pulling out at the moment of the genocide and me as a teenager not really getting it because in school they told me that we, Europe, invented human rights, we invented, um, I don't know, um, humanitarian interventions and all of that. So the, 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 the clash or the discrepancy between the official discourses in universities, in the media, I also worked as a journalist, and then the realities of the majority of this planet and how we experience this global order. I think all of that has brought me to um, what I'm doing today here at the LSE. Mm. Well, as a German, I can say we also invented genocide. Uh, I also lived in Germany. It's part of my story, yeah. Uh, and interestingly enough, I don't even mean the first time around the Holocaust, but mm. the genocide of the Herero people and, and other indigenous people in, in what is now Namibia. Mm. Um, Olivia, your research and teaching focuses on ways to decolonize solidarity using epistemic blackness as methodology. Mm -hmm. And keeping in mind that, you know, I mean, students here might know better, but a lot of public audience, when they hear the podcast, they won't know anything what that means. Could you explain in a few simple words what that is? Yeah. So the decolonizing bit is, is more accessible, but I'll, I'll come back to it. And the epistemic blackness one, I'm still figuring it out, but I'll also <laughs> speak to that. <laughs> but um, to tie it, what I said before, trying to understand the international um, order, I call it order, but you know, let's say everything from international aid, helping each other, even all the best intentions. I think what I've come to understand, uh, and it took me also a very long time to finish the PhD because of these things, is that um, the way we tend to study them from the mainstream is by focusing on the Western experience and storytelling of history, but also the present. So we will call something a refugee crisis because we feel it as a crisis for, let's say, Europe to how to practically go about receiving them, whereas a refugee crisis should be about actual people dying in the Mediterranean. Right? And so similarly, I think the crisis of the UN and stuff, like the focus is often on very technical stuff. So I guess the decolonizing bit is somehow, um, when it comes to research, it's, it's somehow that we, we, it's almost a political commitment to study the world differently for different purposes. And that purpose can be to really recenter the reasons why we study something, to have something to say about life and death and how that's distributed rather than just, oh, this is interesting. And, and the reason why, why it's tied to life and death is that we have enough examples in, in, in our scientific community, you know, back in the days of uh, biological racism when we were like measuring people's um, skulls and stuff. It was also in the spirit of, this is just interesting, let's see what happens. Mm. But there is no outside to the political use of knowledge. So I think decolonial approaches is a re-invitation -invita to be more, much more candid about this, so you can be in or out, I mean, you, you choose. But it's about stopping to pretend that there is no politics to, to science on the one hand. And epistemic blackness as a methodology is something that I've decided to focus on for now, and I've also just um, um, started a new course here at LSE called Reading Black Thought, is to just say there is such a glaring underrepresentation of the black experience, but also black thinkers, when we study this global order, right? Mm -hmm. So often they're the object of our study, but they're not necessarily, but if we were interested in power and how it allows some people to survive and the majority of people not, mm -hmm. 
then I think we can sometimes, it's such a shortcut if you actually go to those that have historically been subjected to the most dark sides of our histories, right? And so that, that means that it's obviously not just people of African descent, but it's basically saying like, we'll start the story somewhere else. We try and it's not cancel culture, let me say that already. So it's not about, we're not gonna recount and all of that anymore, but just to say like, there is an overrepresentation of a very tiny minority of thinkers mm. on planet Earth even just from an intellectual point of view, it's like it mm. might be actually exciting to, to just like reverse that. So that's yeah. how I would say that epistemic blackness as a methodology is not to say that black people have magical thinking, mm. but it's to say given the glaring absence, mm. it won't actually hurt to s study from another vantage mm. point. It's really interesting and you know, mentioning Kant uh, and other great thinkers of the Enlightenment, whilst they have many interesting stuff, many of them were deeply racist, so was Immanuel Kant, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Maya, over to you. Yeah, I mean, first of all, thank you for being here and for sharing your knowledge and your, your expertise with us on, on this panel. And, you know, it's really so refreshing to hear your insights, both as an established scholar of the academy, but also at the LSE. And um, since we are at the LSE, and the motto is to understand the causes of things, I wanted to actually touch on the question of the importance of Black History Month, but dig a little deeper into some of the initiatives um, that sustain the impetus gained from these kinds of months, like mm. decolonizing initiatives that exist in the university. Um, so I guess my question to you is, you know, what are your thoughts um, on the tensions that are really embedded within trying to carry out that kind of radical project, ultimately in a conservative institution. I mean, it always seems to me that, um, you know, it's quite an enticing and engaging project in the beginning. It's given different names. It's called inclusive education. It's called holistic education. But then you slowly see it be co-opted by different forces. And this is something that, you know, students really think about. Yeah. No, it's, um it's a really important question because often, you know, I've also been asked the question like, you know, Black History Month, what does it mean? Is it important or not? The first thing for me is like, it's just deeply sad that we still have to have something like Black History Month to start with. That's maybe on a more personal note. Secondly, if we want to celebrate Black life, one month a year is not enough. <laughs> so that, that's the other one. But then um, I've been thinking about a lot, especially when it comes to both Black History Month, but also um, decolonial, um, managerial excitement, let's say, because we know what, what happens when something is, is commodified. And before that, it was like a long, long time ago, it was multiculturalism. And then it was um, diversity, um, and now it's diversity, inclusion, equality, all of that, right? So I think I have come to translate Black History Month, and the reason why I do participate in things like this, um, for me, it's a month of accountability, and it can be accountability ourselves to see like how do we reproduce this, uh, but mostly also accountability as an invitation to the institutions, and if they want to brand themselves around these things, um, we can reverse the question and say like, how do you make it meaningful, right? Because there is a deep contradiction, um, and, and I got to this from more abolitionist thought, right? Where there's some things are not tenable. The university was never created to contain all of us. Like that would not. University is also not necessarily created to effect change. It's, it's, I think, historically also a deeply conservative place that reproduces the, the status quo, right? So you, te you teach one generation to continue to work in the machinery for the next. But the university, like, or, like all institutions, so whether it's a conservative university or not, um, it always also has cracks, and that's also why we end up sitting here, so that the, the accountability for us is, is to, we ended up in this place, what we're gonna do with it, and then I'm gonna show, I'm like point to you because <laughs> tonight you represent the, the institution, <laughs> but institution as well, if you, if you decide to brand yourself around it, like how do you, like what does accountability mean in that context, right? Um, and then there is this tiny, nice space of the classroom where, where you can actually, so I think the university can have genuine places where we have genuine conversations, but we should also not assume just because everybody's on board now or, or knows the word or whatever, that's actually the most dangerous uh, moment. But at the same time, I also refuse to hand the potential of the radicalness to the institution and say, oh, they've, they've stolen it now, so let's, let's move on to the next thing. And I think that's also, 
how I've experienced, for instance, uh, when I arrived here nine years ago in the UK, post-colonialism was something that in Belgium I would still have to negotiate as an actual academic approach that is serious. Whereas here in the UK, people were like, oh, we've done this, what's next, right? So there is, there is a danger also to, to let go of some of the labels. So the labels are not that important. It's more like, what do you do with it? And, and how can we protect some spaces for radicalness, but also be very um, mindful of the impossibility of certain things. This university, non-university will ever be decolonized but we can use the power that is in these universities to also engage in decolonial projects that are, go outside this university as well, but also make us think about education is not just something that just here, but also outside of that. So that's me trying not to be cynical, but. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, very valid points, and I guess also stemming from the same question is this similar concern regarding sustainability and, and longevity and I wonder how professors and academics who exist within the institution can encourage and support and respond to those challenges faced by advocates of decolonizing initiatives, you know? Mm. Um, what strategies can we as students and as staff and academics and, you know, members of LSE's senior management committee use to collaboratively and effectively address some of these issues? Mm. think, like after I speak, I'm gonna invite you to also think about this. But um, I, um, for me personally, the way I try to, to keep going is to think of it in very small portions as well, right? So thinking every practice that, that, that we do, whether it's teaching, writing, collaboration, even engagements with both students, but also our colleagues, right? Is to try and think what, what of, what choices can I make to reproduce a status quo that is deeply colonial, which would mean me being in competition with my colleagues because that's how academia is organized, or me uh, engaging with my students only in a relationship of I'm gonna judge you how you know well you're doing or not, um, or me reproducing the idea that standing in front of the classroom means that I have more knowledge than, than, than everybody uh, there. So, and I, I start by saying it's the, it's the little things because if I think of the whole thing, then I'm reminded of how tired I am when I stay home, right? So there is, and so the little things, um, or, or, or chopping it up in little bits helps to also then remember that um, it's not something that we do as individuals. And that also is something that, that helps. So, so, you know, like, connecting with, with the student union or knowing that there's other people doing similar things or um, means that you can, you can also humble your own contribution in that. And, and it also uh, allows for, for some energy there. But if I had you know, ad advice to students would be, given that the university is organized in a very, very neoliberal capitalist way, and we are invited to see you guys as clients, and you are paying way too much money for an education, then I think you can also translate that into uh, having very clear and again collective ways of, of formulating what you want. And, and I've seen that, like parts of the reason why this is on the agenda for, in, for so many is because students have formulated that as, we don't see this just as social justice, but it's actually also the quality of our education the ability for us to, to function and thrive and survive in this, in this university that was not made for us. But also, so I would say that's one of the few times we can actually lean into the, the horrible capitalism of, of this whole thing. Um, and, and I think some staff members are also very encouraged when students do that. So formulating as demands is something that also has helped me to revolutionize the way that I try and teach just by saying, it was in the student forms, whatever, the evaluation blah that we have to fill out. Mm -hmm. um, so, so in that sense, that, that's something I would always encourage, like just formulate what you want, um, and, and we have responsibility to respond to that. Um, yeah. What about senior management? Well, um, I mean, let's address decolonizing the curriculum for I mean, obviously some pushback from academic staff would be, oh, I have academic freedom, you know, you can't tell me what to teach or, or how to teach. So I think the, the trick is 
to get them to understand this is not, you know, we're not telling you what to do, but have you thought about how your reading list looks like and, and how unrepresentative it is? So trying to get them kind of on board, I think that, that is the really important issue because I think the vast majority of our staff are actually not opposed to it uh, and would welcome it. But as you know, it is, it is just how one goes about it that will be the, the trick there. I think, I think um, from from management perspective, right, because I think it's true, like at the level, if we speak as, as colleagues, like um, putting a syllabus together is just one tiny level. But what I remember also sharing in, in some types of these meetings is that, if I'm honest, for me, the because I also had to decolonize my own syllabus, obviously, because that's not how I would start. I did most of that labor in my free time, but I also did it so during the summer, in the evenings, the weekends, whatever, but it comes maybe much more as a sense of urgency to me because I live the consequences of that over-representation. So I, do, I, do, I, I don't think I've had much pushback from horizontal colleagues, mm -hmm. but I do uh, think that there, there's so much more scope, and that's just at, at the academic staff level, for senior management to have imaginations of how do we create time for this, and we know that that means where is the money for this, right? So that it actually becomes part of um, quality assurance rather than just a social justice project. And if it's quality, you know, we know we can find money for this. So I think by 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 reflecting it as this might be a pushback that academics are comfortable. I mean that also exists. But if it's something that is supported uh, infrastructurally, mm. and I think that will also then again release energy for us to be much more receptive to whatever students might ask us, because again, honestly, um, there is no free time outside of the free time that we use to even think of these things, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so, I'll, um, so yeah, I would say it's, it's about it's better science, it's more professional, it's quality assurance. And next to all of that, it's also mm -hmm. potentially you know, life-saving for the majority of this plan. But that's, I wouldn't say that's even a side note, but I think um, for me that those are invitations to senior management. I think sometimes should be taken more seriously. And we've, we've struggled with this when it comes to Athena Swan and, and, and uh, feminism and gender issues where it becomes a tick the box exercise because nobody has time. Similarly, I think with the race charter and like, so there are pressures, but to understand how it should be treated, I think with much more sense of urgency for all the reasons that we've given, right? And that requires infrastructure, not just goodwill or people being woke or open-minded or something. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess lastly, before handing the mic back to Eric, I just wanted to talk about a big part of your own research, which has really inspired me because it talks um, and really focuses on the refocusing of dignity in development studies. And as an Afghan researcher, I've noticed that um, Anglophone authors tend to describe an Afghanistan that is divorced from my reality. Mm. Um, you know, publishing reports and articles, um, claiming that their knowledge is objective, uh, rational, unbiased, material, while mine is partial, mm. subjective, and immaterial. Um, and I think a lot of this kind of policy-informed research is perverse, um, especially when it does talk about you know, the development of the third world, in inverted commas. Um, because this academic framing, what we are seeing, is still marked by um, a history of colonial scholarship and also Western accounts of um, maintaining and recording certain narratives in history. Um, and I wonder what your thoughts are on this and if you feel that there's some kind of power associated with uh, refocusing dignity in research, especially on the global south. And if you think that in doing so, it legitimizes local accounts of knowledge production and um, you know, really hones in on this, um, conducting research in this kind of way. Yeah. Um, so when, when I said before that for me, part of what decolonization is about, or the decolonial, is about um, inviting people to be more frank about the purpose of knowledge, right? Or the purpose of knowing something. And for me, that, that's really, especially, um, as I said, I was initially interested as an international relations scholar, you know, big powers, 
where is the place of Africa in that, whatever, you study Africa, you end up in development studies somehow. But I was actually more interested in the UN than the EU. Uh, but the long, even my PhD trajectory was 12 years, right? Like it took so long for me to actually understand that what I was trying to answer, how could so many people die while the UN exists? Um, and then I moved on to look at the EU and you know, how would its ethical foreign policy look like? What should they do? So this assumption that if the EU would only show up more often, give more money, be more consistent and everything would be fine, right? It took me a very long time to even be exposed to decolonial, post-colonial thought to then realize I was asking the wrong question because nothing in history showed that there was automatically a positive outcome when Western presence is there, right? And so this has brought me today to, to it's untenable for me now to, to teach international development as something that is a given. But again, having more abolitionist approaches to it to say that what happens if I take the students in my classroom seriously? So today here I teach um, uh, MSc uh, Human Rights and Politics. It's a similar setup of students, people that have committed also a lot of their money to be trained to be able to um, engage positively in the world, right? You want to affect positive change and I don't think we should be cynical about that at all. But then if most of our training is actually about reproducing a deeply mythological Western superiority in the role of bringing good into the world. Like literally everything else, everything in history is the opposite of that. Like it's just, it's not even about saying good guys versus bad guys, whatever. It's just, it's literally just historiography, right? Uh, so if we reverse that, and one of the reasons that I then turn to epistemic blackness is to say that it's really a shortcut if you actually study the world from the position of the previously and contemporary colonized peoples because a lot of, I know I can't swear because they bleep it out, but a lot of the, the untenable stuff <laughs> that, that we, we keep on uh, reproducing just doesn't hold, like it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense, right? International debt regimes, for instance, or the fact that we can call something international aid when it follows decades of pillage and, 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 um, um, and destruction, right? I, I think just, just the case of Afghanistan even if it were just to teach international relations just on the basis of your country, it's, 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 it's a no-brainer. And I think that's the sense of, of uh, impatience that I've received more and more over the years. It's like we are wasting so much time in speaking back to these big canonical thinkers to crack a code that doesn't need cracking because it's there for us to see, like it's not that difficult, right? So that's how I ended up with dignity. But dignity is actually just one of the ways for us maybe to theorize what it means to center life rather than power when we try and understand the international. And when we do that, then again, yeah, it does make sense to actually center the people concerned first as experts, not as just data or, you know, uh, street interviews or how do you feel about this? Yeah, or exactly. Or how do you, the emotional part, whatever. It's always like almost like an illustration only rather than um, than the starting point of expertise. And then you can bring them in conversation with these big thinkers that, you know, used to be the center of our canons because studying them makes us understand how the world actually works, right? So it's not even about dismissing certain types of knowledge, it's just re reversing the order because you're intentional about the purpose of why you know. And that brings me back to the university. A lot of our disciplines came to be and came to be um, um, developed in a context of empire. So anthropology, sociology, whatever, like the containment of Probably. peoples. And yeah. so if we do not do the work of repurposing what IR could do or what anthropology could do or what any of this, then we reproduce it and then it feels like, oh, just bring in the brown voices. It's just kulalogar, it's just interesting. Mm -hmm. But if you, if you change the purpose, then you're like, yeah, it doesn't make sense to start with um, modernization theory when you want to understand where poverty in the world comes from. You start in 1492 with Columbus from there as, as theory, not just as anecdote. Um, so yeah, that would be my answer to that. Thank you. <laughs> Do you want to ask another question or should we open it up for the audience? We can open it up to you. So let's open it up for the audience. Who would like to ask a question or 
comment. Comments are also good. If you could please introduce yourself before you speak for the benefit of everyone. Yes, please. And wait for the mic, please. Yes, please. Okay, I can I can already go with that. It's all right. Olivia can already address it. Olivia. Yeah. So I think you you were you were um, inviting me to think like, does the post-colonial is it sufficient to describe the the world today? Go ahead. <laughs> No, thank you for that question because I think um, it allows me to uh, maybe to underscore the fact that when 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 we use the the idea of post-colonial, it's not just to signal that we are in a period after colonization. Um, it also wants to signal that because I don't think it was that easy to kick out the colonizers in the 60s and stuff, right? So it's a real thing. But I think what's um, um, also important, especially also when we, when we study the world, is that the post-colonial is an invitation to study the present without pretending that the colo colonialism didn't happen, first of all, but also seeing how it continues in different guises. So we might not see it, and even then, we still have actual settler colonialism as well. Countries like New Zealand, Australia, the US, and Canada are actually settler colonial states. Israel is a settler colonial state, right? So, so I think for us in, in South Africa, it's just quite recently, basically. So this idea that it's all finished, I think even a post-colonial lens allows us to say, no, actually, it's not, even though I was raised to see the US as the most normal country on planet Earth, which is not. So then if we turn to something like um, uh, the Ukraine and Russia, like for me, um, while I, you know, while it broke out in, on, on the 25th of February and I was teaching uh, international human rights, um, also as a black person, right, I, I was thinking how, how do I approach this even in a classroom without to be both pedagogical but also not pretending that these are things that don't affect us. And I speak specifically about maybe the reaction of Europe now I'm just talking about the, re the, uh, the reception of refugees, right? How suddenly Europe remembered we are actually capable of having millions of people come temporarily because we know most of them want to go home and that actually counts for everyone on planet Earth. If they can, people want to go back home. But also 
we know how to organize this because if we allow them to work, contribute to our you know, social security system, then we can also share that one. The kid in Belgium, um, um, kindergarten and primary school teachers were encouraged to make spaces so that children could get education in Ukrainian, right? Like four generation Moroccans in Belgium, when we might even bring up to say like, would it be good maybe to have as a second, third, or fourth language that we teach Arabic or something? It's like, you know, you would think that the country explodes. So um, what, what I'm trying to get at, I'll, I'll try to be briefer, but it's that engaging with post-colonial thought, but also with racism, allowed me, first of all, to understand what was happening, because suddenly for Western Europe, Ukrainians became white. And they weren't. Six months ago, Ukrainians were not white people. No, maybe a year ago. They were Eastern Europeans, whatever. We've seen the racism when the enlargement of the whole European Union in this country have Brexit, right? So the, the lenses of whiteness and racism that we understand deeply from colonialism, that's something that post-colonial thought allows me to see because otherwise I would just say what's going on, right? But at the same time as well, not to be cynical, I think it's really good to say, okay, so now that we remember how to actually receive refugees, can we then do that also for all the others that flee similar situations? On top of that, to go back to the geopolitics, the situations that we continue as European countries be actively part of by the sales of weapons, by the positions we take. by So even if we don't call the colonized peoples to go and fight for us, we have outsourced most of our wars and we make a lot of money economically from many of these wars as well. So I would say there is a continuity, even though it doesn't look exactly the same, that post-colonial thought says, Let's stop pretending that that did not happen because that's for the status quo. Um, yeah, I'll leave it there. I mean, there's so much, but thank you so much for your question. Okay, thank who you. would like to go next? <laughs> yes, maybe, please. Maybe we take some questions together. Let's yeah. take some questions together. Let's take three maybe together. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. If you could briefly state your name and where you're from. Thank you. Over there, please. Yes. Hi. Um, my name's Suyin. I was a student here in 2013, and I actually studied IR. And I remember at that time being super frustrated because I felt like the approaches to post-colonialism and decoloniality were very, like, lacking. <laughs> um, I'm interested to know, and this is really just me being nosy and a bit curious, what your experience has been like here now, like nearly 10 years later from when I was here and how that compares to your experience at other institutions in other countries and whether you feel encouraged by progress and like journeys that mm -hmm. are being taken. Thank you. How long, how long ago was it that you studied here? 2013 to 2016. Okay. Not that old, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> who, goes, who goes next? Yeah, Mark, please. Um, Mark Harris and LSE. Mark Harris and LSE, Director of Student Experience. I was just struck by two, two phrases that you Survive is quite foundational on, on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's, it's 
Take one more? Is it okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just next to you. Yes, please. Thank you so much for coming tonight and for making this your time. Um, my name is Vanessa Gomez. I'm actually also a student here in 2021, um, part of the PDS department that is um, psychology here. Um, in my own research, I focus on anxiety studies, especially within neoliberal systems. Um, you've mentioned capitalism before. Um, A lot. <laughs> Start, please. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I will take actually the China and the capitalism question together. That will actually, I think, help us make connections. Um, I think one thing I've learned, first of all, I guess, from, from engaging with decolonial thought, but not just also feminist thought, post-structural thought, whatever, um, is that um, Engagement ha have to be grounded, and, and they are always partial, rather than um, general truths and us replacing the mainstream truth now with the decolonial truth, right? That's one of the misconceptions often. And, and the reason why I say this is that a, a lot of my engagement with decoloniality are specifically um, by me taking seriously that I am speaking from a Western position, even though I might look as if I was not supposed to be here. And, say, and, and that makes a difference because when I engage with my friends and colleagues in, in Rwanda, for instance, they, they often also have reflections like, who has time to think about blackness? Or like, we don't want to talk about reparations. We're just like, you know, developing our countries, whatever. And, and I, do, I do think that there needs to be space for that, right? So from wherever we're speaking, it does not mean that everybody has to focus in the same way that we are focusing on the West and the Western contributions. But when we speak in the West or from the West, and I don't actually mean this as an individual person only, but if, if we engage these things in the classroom at the LSE in the UK, I mean, just to bring it already to the privileged spaces from which we speak, we are speaking from a Westernized space with a lot of power. Then I still do think we should talk about China just because China is a big part of this world, but it's a different engagement than say, Let's not engage with Europe's responsibility because there is China. And I'm not saying that that's how you brought it up, but it's a lot of, of, of ways in which in, in Western context, I wanted to foreground my comments on China in that sense. That, um, yeah, I've had in, in European studies as well or in development studies specifically, a room full of just European people saying, yeah, but you know, really interesting what you bring about the past, but what about China? The what about China question, um, I think from, a, from a, um, a scholarly point of view, I do think that if we are serious about that question, we have to be also more serious with how we engage with China, right? A lot of us, I would be the first one to say I don't have that much to say about it because I haven't done the work to actually study it. And I'm not just talking about China's role in Africa, but this tendency that we have, and we've seen it in African studies where we don't even feel like we need to know the language, for instance, or the history or whatever. So I would say one of the first things for me would be an invitation to then, if we want seriously talk about it, let's seriously engage with it. And we don't only need to know in very specific terms the history of the US or the, or the UK or Europe to then be able to speak about their role in the world, right? Uh, and, but having said all that, I do think it's important, but I also, as you say, we're not puppets. There's a lot of actors on the continent that have very detailed and specific opinions, analysis of what China is doing, not doing. And there's also a lot of our politicians on the African continent playing with the different players that they have today. We can make the analysis to extent that is a positive or negative uh, contribution. So I would say it is part of the conversation of international relations or the global order. Um, but I, I am sometimes uncomfortable when it, when, when it comes up in, in amongst Europeans, let's put it like that. So that's why I'm not necessarily speaking to you, but you brought up, you brought up China. But 
the reason why I wanted to tie it with the, with the capitalism question is that uh, an engagement with coloniality makes that I can make an analysis of the different things that China is doing if I were to study it in detail and the extent to which it's a, it's a reproduction or something else or both of the colonial practices of, um, um, that, that we have critiques or that we continue to critique uh, from the West. So I, I do think that there is a bias even in post-colonial thought to only study the West in detail um, and I have been more and more interested also, um, started learning Korean here at the, at the LSE, mm -hmm. more, more interested in what are, what are the experiences of colonialism when the West is not the protagonist, right? And like, but, but it's something that, that I'm still trying to figure out, like how does it feature um, and how do I understand it in a non-zero sum game so that it's not like my attention stop, like now I'm gonna look somewhere else and I'm not expressing it very well, but there is something uh, we have, to, we have to, to do more work, let's put it like this. And there is an invitation, I think, from Western-based post-colonial thinkers to also try to um, transcend our own Eurocentrism, right? But there is also a good reason for that Eurocentrism. In terms of um, how that connects then to, to capitalism, I think, you know, the Chinese, but also um, the non-puppets on the receiving end, there is, there, is a, there, is an, there is a love for capitalist development that is shared by many peoples on this planet, right? So I think, again, from a thinker's perspective, the reason why um, anti-racism and decolonial thought and the way that it engages with anti-capitalism as well is an invitation for us to also, especially economists amongst us, I would say, to reimagine how we can organize our global political economy differently because there is no capitalism without racism, like just historically. So the, the connection is that it's based on accumulation. It's also not created for the majority of the planet to enjoy that wealth. And to be able to do the accumulation, the extraction, you need particular ideologies that make it okay to do it in certain ways. So, I mean, I'm butchering a lot here, but that's a connection not just in theory, but it's literally also what happened, right? Transatlantic enslavement, and then the accumulations during formal colonizations, and now the different forms of neocolonialism that makes the exchange uh, unequal and not, and not sustainable for the majority of the planet. And so China is writing itself into that history in similar but also different ways. That needs careful studying, right? But it's not just now China replacing you know, the West. The West is still there, unfortunately, and China is joining, but others are joining. And on the receiving end, there's a lot of very enthusiastic receivers as well. So the conversation of anti-racism needs to, to be had hand in hand with anti-capitalism. And again, probably our imagination is that we've only seen as viable alternative socialism and communism we see was there, and that's also where it feels like, oh no, but we don't want, we don't want that, right? So I think the invitation is and we haven't spoken about ecology, but it's about radically rethinking how we want to organize this global order. So that's um, the connections there. And then in terms of um, the institutional questions, uh, bo both of yours actually were, were uh, thinking about the, the institutions. Um, I do think, you know, um, the shortcut answer to your question would be for me, it's like as educator, but also as an institution, it's about the extent to which we align ourselves to, to answer that question, what knowledge is for or could be for, right? And me as an educator in the classroom, especially if, if I teach you know, programs like human rights or development, it's not difficult, I just ask students why are you here and then we try to align it. I think at institutional level it's slightly more difficult because, because of, the, of the market model of it, but also Universities brand themselves as places where people come and train themselves to be able to enter the labor market as well, right? So it is, again, deeply entangled in, uh, in that capitalist logic. So I would, I would think universities need to think about some of the impossibilities there as well. And we see that both on, on the student side, but also, you know, we've, we've seen the strikes, strikes might, might come back and stuff. But there is something that needs to give that it doesn't work. And that's also how we see that many of this these conversations are being commodified, right? And, and that, that's the tension, right? So we can, we can include them just enough because we feel this is what people are talking about today. So let's do 
um, EDI, let's do equality, diversity, and inclusion, let's do uh, decolonization and stuff. So, but if, if the question is, it's not even just because the LSE is an elite university, that just exacerbates it, but, but it's, it's a bigger question actually, which, um, yeah. It, yeah, it's it's a big it's a it's a societal question, right? And and the reason like I want to tie this um, to to the question about different institutions, I did my education in Belgium, where university is almost free. I mean, let's say that if your parents are really really rich, you have to pay a thousand quid like pounds to to study for one year. That's that's the um, the tuition. It's it's incomparable, right? But on the thing that actually struck me is that. Um, it also made that education was organized as much more bigger classrooms and the more hierarchical thing where you have in the front the professor that knows everything. You don't see these people up front. Like I never spoken or very few times spoken to, I'm, also, I'm quite old, but like you did not have a first name basis relation with your, your professors. And it's hierarchical in the sense that getting your degree means you listen very carefully to what they bring to you. You learn it by heart, you put it on your exam and then, and then you, you pass. So the funny thing is that the whole decolonial story is much easier to sell in the UK. I remember when I did my interview to go to Portsmouth, there was enthusiasm because people say, oh, it sounds new, I'm sure students will love it, right? So the flip side of the neoliberal model where we offer something new and exciting is that there is seemingly space for everything that sounds new, but then along the way we see how the newness is being deployed to keep everything the same. So that's a, a different type of challenge, I think, than in some of the more, uh, in the different, um, uh, the other traditions where, where university is almost free, but it's much more uh, a mass approach uh, to, to education. So again, I think that's a deep political economic question that we need to have. Like what, what, what's the role of education? I mean, I'm gonna sound like a communist, but I think education <laughs> should be free for everyone because it's a public good. But how do we organize this in a way that, that um, tries to circumvent some of, the, some of these challenges? I think three more questions. Uh, please keep it brief, and we need to keep oh, so <laughs> to keep brief. It. Uh, here, here, and then you go first, and then the third one over there. Um, hi, my name is Hannah Zawabi. I'm hoping to study here next year. And a big part of my statement to get in here has been focused on African foreign policy and how economically we can help Africa without you know, fundamentally using aid. And um, I was just wondering, you mentioned earlier about how the education system predominantly like, it, um, generates the same sort of like, generations of people time and time again. And I was just wondering, in relation to post-colonial thought, how can we change that? And how do you suggest that it's sort of diversified um, into a way that post-colonialism in education systems isn't seen by just um, you know, predominantly white writers and there's a different variety of thought? Mm. Thank you. And the last question,
which indeed, and you have about five minutes for three no. very diff <laughs> difficult questions. Um, <laughs> I am very tired. Um, <laughs> I, um, one, I think one thing I've, I've, I've learned from being in the UK, which is a positive thing, and it's by accident, and it's not because of the UK, I think it's in spite of it. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's been a, an example of, um, I can't remember what it was, but it was, it was a conference somewhere, or no, a panel that was gonna be organized, and, and the framing of the whole thing was quite, you know, uh, prejudiced and racist and whatever. And I, res and, and I saw it, and I thought, whatever. And I, I wish I remember the details, but I, I don't. But I thought like, you know, one of a million, many of these things that we see. But I received an email from um, a collective of white colleagues and friends and comrades, whatever. They say, we have drafted this, this letter because we, don't, we want to stop it or we want this to change, actually, basically. We don't want you to do anything. We just wanted to acknowledge it. And if you want to sign it, you can, but you don't have to. And, and I think what I remember at that time is that this is the type of labor that we, we need. And I'm not going to use allies because it's, it's again, horribly commodified as a, as a concept. But, um, and we, we need it most from those with most power, right? That's the first thing. But even our peers, what I learned from that experience is that um, it is okay, I guess, to formulate some of the labor that we should not be doing anymore. And then when you think about the the labor that does give us life, and, and um, as I said, that, that, that reaffirms that we are part of the university and whatever. Those are the things that I might still be physically tired, but they give me energy as well, right? So just having the space to organize my classroom the way I want it, the way we have discussions, whatever, it's not geared towards students of color, but it's, um, it, it's, it's just thinking, where would I have found joy if I had gone to university in that way and is that something with the little power I have that I can create? And that by definition then is open to whomever is interested in that. And we have joy in my classroom. Like, I don't know, <laughs> maybe I'm like, I, I generally, we talk about really difficult stuff, but it's, it's about, um, so as a general strategy, I would say like, um, let's try and organize around things that we would do even if racism, the bigotry, the premature that whatever wouldn't exist because of the joy of learning and the joy of coming together, whatever. And then let's think of all the labor that is necessary for us all to be able to do that. And then ask our white allies, the people with power to do that labor for us. And, and, and um, I don't always know what that plays out in, in practice, right? But I think it helped me also think in terms of politics of refusal there's a whole set of things I don't want to do anymore. I don't want to explain anymore. I don't, it's easy to say also today, like look it up, Wikipedia. We made all the reading lists, all the, the, the podcast lists, all the whatever, like after Ferguson, after all these things, like we've been, keep on doing this labor. We don't have to do it. It's not to be nasty. It's just like we, we need to create space to be able to do this for the long run because it's not a tick the box exercise where we say if we do X, Y, Z, then tomorrow we're decolonized. We're not, this is the survival thing for, for the longest time, right? So I would invite everyone in the room to think about division of labor. Um, and a lot of that labor might be behind the scenes for many people. And again, maybe people might not be comfortable with that, but that's, that's what's needed. Um, and the other option is also to, to walk out. Like for me, the reason why I have energy to be here is that the day it doesn't work, I will walk out. Like so that we don't tie our identities to places that were not designed for us. But I also know why I'm here. I wanna, I don't know, take back some of stuff that was ours in, in to begin with anyway. But also places where we come together to learn. It should, you know, it's almost it's almost our own presence is also a gift for others, right? So I think in that sense we can also think of it in in, in those generous terms. And so I think in terms of the question about like how do we then conceive or what is the practical things that we do to not reproduce that in readings, I, get, I actually get joy from trying to design different ways to study foreign policy or different, so, um, and maybe that's something I haven't talked about enough, but um, it's, it's, it's just keeping it in mind why it is that you do it rather than just doing it because this is, 
the next place where everybody thinks we're right or just or even to win an argument like it's not even that but if for me to tie reading lists to our imaginations of how we organize this planet differently but also who gets to live or to die that that's also a thing that that makes it meaningful right and even if it doesn't work this time and it takes a long time like you don't have another choice than to just keep because it's more more bigger than 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 ourselves but then also along the way you pick up some some tricks on how to go about it so some of the changes we make we don't always have to call it decolonizing or, or this or that. We can just say rethinking and then just change the whole reading list. And, but nobody will look at rethinking. It's fine, right? <laughs> so, it, 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 so it's actually, I think, maybe taking ourselves as egos also out of this whole project. It's, not, it's literally not about us as individuals either. But it's, it is urgent, especially if we think about politics on the continent or whatever. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I hope that sounded a bit encouraging, but <laughs> that's, yeah, that's what I no, would want to end I up. mean, I think it's, it's urgent. It's also alarming. And I think Sahar points out a very interesting area that a lot of students of color experience and feel. And, and that's you know what we were discussing kind of before getting on here is the double burden of both experiencing the discrimination and the racism and then also being expected to be the ones on the forefront to fix it. Exactly. Um, and I think that, you know, back to Akile's point, like these are sabbatical officers before me have all kind of said the same things, we're having almost the same conversations. And I think it points at, you know, the sense of microaggressions and how it's really, you know, a conduit or an avenue um, into deeper discussions of race and racism without it being a discussion of racism in itself. Um, and I think that a lot of times, you know, when we use words like intersectionality, I know someone in the back of the room mentioned, you know, IR back in 2013. I finished my master's in comparative politics just this summer, and I assure you, nothing's changed. <laughs> like, um, I think intersectionality has been co-opted in so many, in so many ways that really doesn't take the focus away from. Um, race and racism in ivory towers, it's become really diluted and um, it's, it's really just amounted to a conversation about identity and identity yeah. politics, rather than looking at the root cause of what we're trying to explore as scholars of color um, and as, as uh, academics of the global south. And I think, you know, it, it's what we're doing at the management level is neither sufficient nor is it adequate because we have student feedback that it address exactly your point. And students have been saying the same exact thing for over a decade. And we're, we're standing up here and saying the same things that we have been saying before. And I, and I hope this changes. And, and I'm glad that we have professors like um, Dr. Olivia, who's here today to challenge some of these notions. And we have students like yourself and myself and so many students here in the audience as well who believe in this. It's just a matter of getting the institution to also believe in it as well. I have a very brief way to, to actually illustrate this. Um, you know, I've been talking about these things for 20 years, but just that, just uh, also as an illustration, like it's been going on for a long time and I'm still quite young relatively to other people. But um, a lot of the most recent conversations institutionally have been about, for instance, the BAME attainment gap, right? Like, again, like this may be the more benign places where we try to fix something. So let's focus on these students that seem not to go as fast as the others. And the quickest way for us to understand, I think, what's wrong with that is not the intentions of maybe the few enlightened individuals with enough power to do this. It's that it's easier to pathologize and medicalize the BAME students than to say we have a problem of whiteness and white supremacy as an institution. So if we were to imagine, I mean, we still need Black History Month because we do, but if we were to imagine all these projects as, as projects against the whiteness of the institution, then immediately everybody's much more uncomfortable for good reasons. But that goes to the heart of the thing is that the problem is almost the totality and then you have few student bodies that don't fit in that, but they are not the problem, right? But it's also about understanding that if we, if we address whiteness, the problem of whiteness, it would literally benefit all the students. So it's not against the white students, right? But to think about the difference between BAME attainment gap and the fight against whiteness of the institution, for me that's a short way to try and understand that's where we go wrong. And if it's about addressing the whiteness of the institutions, we understand that the biggest uh, responsibility will never be 
with the racialized students. And then maybe we would be less tired as well. But, you know, we're still here. We have energy to keep going. So. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of this particular event. Uh, please join me in thanking Maria and Olivia for really fascinating events. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.